Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, we're going to be picking back up in the book of Philippians this morning, so please turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. And I want to just kind of remind you of some of the circumstances surrounding this letter again, because it's been a while since we have been in this text. Paul is, is giving an account of how he is doing as he is imprisoned in Rome for preaching the gospel. And so the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to Rome to basically comfort and care for Paul while he's there suffering for the gospel's sake. And this letter comes now back to the church at Philippi. It's sent back to them by the hands of Epaphroditus. It's sent to them to thank them for their comfort, thank them for what they've done for him, and also prepare them for the ministry God has for them there in Philippi. And so the Philippians, when they, when they received this letter, they were excited, I'm sure. Their beloved Paul had written back to them about his personal suffering, how he was doing. And they would have expected the opening of this letter to give them the news about how Paul is doing personally in the midst of his suffering. Just, just imagine for just a minute that we get this letter from the Apostle Paul that we had actually sent a present to him and now he is sending this back to us. We would so, be so excited about what this letter contained. We would rush to hear what Epaphroditus has to say. They, they, again, they expected to hear something like this. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I am suffering horribly. I need food, I need clothing, I need help, I need freedom. Please send some more help. I'm desperate. But that's not what you hear in this letter. Instead of reporting about how he was doing, all Paul can talk about is how the gospel is doing. That's all he is thinking about. Paul has a singularity of purpose in his life. And I think it's something we need to understand and learn from today. So if you would, look with me at Philippians 1. We're going to look through the section 12 to 18. We're going to actually do a little bit of review and back up and refocus on 12 to 13, and I'll explain that in a minute, but let's read through the text to get a flow of the thought here. Look what it says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul's, Paul's response here to his circumstances is remarkable. Paul's response to suffering is amazingly God-honoring. It is not self-focused. He is not seeking comfort. He is seeking God's praise as he is responding to their concern for him in this prison, in this circumstance. And I think in this overall section, 
there are really three lessons, three important lessons that we can learn this morning. And actually, we're going to focus on one this morning and one next week and one the week after. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down verses 12 and 13 a little bit more today as, as a whole and just talk about a lesson we can learn from that. And then we'll look at verse 14 next week and then verses 15 to 17 the week following. We have to do that because I think the, the harder text is verses 15 through 17. And to get there and understand it, we need to start here at 12 and 13 once again. Each section basically builds on the previous section to teach us three lessons about suffering. Three lessons about suffering. I think that the Apostle Paul is teaching us how to joyfully advance the gospel and honor God in the midst of difficult circumstances. I think we, we need to prepare for this ourselves. I think we need to prepare ourselves as a church to suffer for Christ's sake and as Christians. I think today in light of our culture and our commission, we need to be prepared for this mission that God's given us. We need to be able to be joyful as we advance the gospel, even if it costs us suffering. And it will. You will suffer in this life. You live long enough, you will suffer. You will either suffer for being a witness for Christ or just simply suffer for living in this life because this world is fallen and in sin. So there is suffering that we must face in this life. We will face it as Christians. And so we need to know how to do that in such a way that we could actually cause the, the gospel to advance in the midst of our suffering. That's what Paul is consumed with. Paul is not consumed with how he is doing. He is consumed with how his circumstances will advance the gospel in the kingdom of God. I, I want that this morning. I want that to be my perspective when I deal with suffering. So many times when I deal with suffering, and, and if I was to write this letter to you, it would be all about me and my comfort, my discomfort, my personal agenda. But that's not what we see with the Apostle Paul. We see him saying this is about the advancement of the gospel. And church, that's what we need to see. Because we're going to suffer. But God doesn't want us to waste our suffering on ourselves. He wants us to use it to advance the gospel. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at that this morning. According to Paul, on your outline you have this. The joyful advancement of the gospel comes from, number one, confidence in God's providential plan. Verses 12 to 13. Paul trusted in God to use his suffering to advance the gospel. We need to be able to trust God to use our suffering to advance the gospel as well. What we'll look at next week will be this. The joyful advancement of the gospel comes from, number two, confidence in God's persevering people. Paul trusted in God to use others to advance the gospel. He wasn't prideful. He didn't think that it all hinged on the great apostle Paul. He was confident in God who would use others to do what he could not do. We need to have that perspective. It's not all about us. It's about what God will do through his people as they persevere in the gospel. Thirdly, the joyful advancement of the gospel comes from confidence in God's preserving Power, verses 15 to 18. Here we see Paul trusting in God to preserve the gospel in spite of his rivals, in spite of 
insincerity and impurity in the church. He is trusting that God will preserve the gospel by His power, even through His rivals. Church, we, we're going to have rivals. We're going to have insincere people. And so we need to have confidence that God will work through them and in spite of them to preserve His message. He's done that throughout church history. It begins here in Philippi. We see that. The brothers that are talked about there are brothers in verses 17 and 18. Those are brothers, but they have insincere motives. They have basically selfish ambition driving them. But that's not what Paul's concerned with. Paul's concerned with the gospel going forward. So that's what we need to be concerned about as well. Paul doesn't actually correct these guys in this text. He doesn't give us any information about these guys in this text other than their motives being impure. And the reason he doesn't is because these guys weren't at the church at Philippi. They were there in Rome. It's not addressed to them. He's not having to correct their errors there in Philippi. So he's simply saying, look, their, their motives are wrong, but the gospel's going forward. Have confidence in God who can even use rivals to proclaim his message. But today, primarily what we're going to do is we're going to look at part one. The joyful advancement of the gospel and God's honor flows out of, one, confidence in God's providential plan for our suffering. Again, Philippians speaks of this in verses 12 and 13 there. He says, I want you to know, brothers, and this is how he addresses them when they ask him about how he is doing. He says, brothers, here's how I'm, here's how I'm doing. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. My, my imprisonment has happened for this reason. He doesn't, he doesn't complain here. He is not bitter about his imprisonment. He is not frustrated by this impossible circumstance. I mean, this is the man who lives and breathes to preach the gospel, and now he's confined to a house with an imperial guard. And he can't go out into the streets. He can't go out into the synagogues. He can't go out into the fields and proclaim like he wants to proclaim. He has, he has a fire shut up in his bones. But he says, it's okay. God put me here. And if God put me here, he put me here for a reason. And I'm confident in that. And if, if we're going through suffering, if we're going through trials, if we're imprisoned by these things, we can be confident that God has put us here for a reason. It is, it is this reason. It is to advance the gospel. It is to reveal the power of the gospel. That's what he's saying here. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really happened, he says, to advance the gospel. Verse 13, so that it, the gospel, it, the gospel, has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul is, is saying, in all of this, in all of this imprisonment, Here's what's happening. The gospel's advancing. It's reaching people who would have never heard it before because God has placed me here. And, and that's why I think in verse 18, at the end of that, he says, this is what I rejoice in. He's not rejoicing because he's in prison. That's not what he's rejoicing about. He's rejoicing in the fact that this message is going to people that would never hear it apart from this imprisonment, apart from this suffering. In this, in all of this, Paul was rejoicing. Amazingly, Paul is trusting in God here to use his suffering 
to advance the gospel. We need to, we need to have this mindset. When we're suffering, it is by God's sovereign will that we are suffering. It is either sanctifying us, disciplining us, or preparing us to be His witness. And, and He's using it specifically for our good. It is never against us. It is for our good. His imprisonment wasn't because of sin. No, He was sent here to reach those who were imprisoned by sin. His captors, the soldiers, they were in prison. Paul was free in those chains. And the only way they could be set free was to be chained to the Apostle Paul and hear the message of the Gospel. So sometimes your suffering is for that very reason. You are enchained to this suffering so that those around you can hear the message of the Gospel for the first time. But you have to have this confidence that God puts you there or you'll waller in your suffering and self-pity. I mean, if anyone had reason to have self-pity, I think it's the Apostle Paul. He's beaten, he's stoned, he's shipwrecked, he's imprisoned. Not because he's doing anything wrong. He's doing everything right. Why do bad things happen to such a good guy? Because God willed for him to go through these things to show the persevering power of the gospel to place him in circumstances where suffering was preeminent, first place, and people would see it and wonder about the hope that lies within this great apostle Paul. He says it's the same hope you can have in suffering. God has promised that this suffering, though it is difficult, this suffering will cease in Christ. One day, my suffering will cease. Those, those soldiers, the imperial guards in verse 13, their suffering would never cease unless the Apostle Paul had been placed in this prison. Their suffering would have increased in hell. Yet God placed him there providentially by his will for his glory and their good. Paul was, again, imprisoned here and he was incapable of preaching like he wanted to. And yet it was through this physically impossible situation that Paul is now rejoicing. He's rejoicing because it is God who will get the glory in whatever is done in this situation. It will not be because of what Paul did. Paul didn't place himself in prison. He didn't want to be in prison. But he is placed here so that God would be glorified, so that we would rejoice in this when we face suffering, that God places us in situations where only God can accomplish his sovereign will to glorify his name and reach others with the gospel. I think God's providence here is, is phenomenal. His plan is amazing when we look at this. I think, I think that's what really verses 12 and 13 are meant for us to see. I think 12 and 13 are meant to create joyful confidence in God when we face suffering. I don't think there's a deep theological meaning to this. I just simply think that God wants us to exalt his goodness even in the midst of our suffering. God has not abandoned us. He has promised to be with us all times, in all places. And, and Paul here is able to see that because Paul, the Apostle Paul, has something that we need. The Apostle Paul has a one-track mind. When he's asked about how he's doing, he doesn't mention anything about himself personally. All he's consumed with is how the Gospel is doing. How can I honor God in this situation? 
He, he wants to point them to how God is working through his suffering, not how he is doing. He has a one-track mind. He, he wants to advance the gospel. He wants to glorify God. He wants to see the lost saved. That's all he's consumed with. He knows that God put him in this situation for a very specific reason. God put him here in an impossible situation so that God is glorified in the advancement of the gospel. We see that over and over again in Scripture. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 1. God uses impossible circumstance in possible situations so that God himself would get the praise for the outcome in these situations. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. God chose not only an impossible situation, he chose an impossible message to display his wisdom, to display the foolishness of Christ's death as the way to atone for our sin and glorify himself. Look what he says in 1.18. This is an impossible message. The word of the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly or the impossibility of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but here's what we do. They want wisdom and they want signs, but we don't give them either. We give them what is impossible. We preach Christ, the Messiah crucified. The Redeemer of God's people, dead on a cross. Treated like a criminal. This is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, those who are called both Jews and Greeks, he says we're preaching Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This impossible message mixed with faith, given by God and His grace, leads to the wisdom of God in salvation. That's what he says. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In God's wisdom, He set forth His Son to be our, our substitutionary sacrifice, to die for our sins, to pay our penalty. And that was foolishness to those who were perishing. But to those who have faith to believe, this is the wisdom of God, he says. Verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. This is, God calls impossible people. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose putting Paul in a prison to shame the powerful Romans. Jesus conquered Rome in a prison. That's what's going on there. He slew the soldiers that were chained to Paul through the gospel. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let 
the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is Paul's one-track mind. This is what Paul is consumed with. I want to show the world in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of these impossible circumstances, that it is God who is at work redeeming sinners. It is not by my cleverness. It is not by my human ability. It is by God's sovereign providential plan that I'm here so that these men can hear the gospel and be saved. God chooses the impossible to accomplish that which will bring him the most glory. God chose, go with me to 2 Corinthians, you'll see this, 2 Corinthians 4. God chose, <laughs> this, is, this is astounding to me, God chose the most unlikely of vehicles to deliver the gospel. God chose to carry the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. And he chose to do that so that, so that his message and his glory would outshine the messengers. I think, I think this is part of what's going on in the Apostle Paul's mind there as he's writing to the church at Philippi. See, the church at Philippi fell in love with the Apostle Paul. He was the great founder of their church. He was the great apostle. He could do no wrong. And without Paul, we will fail. We had the problem there in Corinth. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. And Paul says, no. This message is given to jars of clay so that the surpassing glory will belong to God. So I think even the imprisonment at, Philipp, or at Rome, as he's writing to Philippi, is to testify to the Philippians that it's not by might, it's not by my power, it's by the work and the will of God that the gospel is advancing here in, in this prison cell. He wants the message to outshine the messenger. That's what we see here in 2 Corinthians 4-5. He says, for, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I think Paul is in prison to do this. I think he's in prison to show the Philippians and the Romans that the power of God is not in the Apostle Paul in and of himself. It is in the message that he declares. It's the message, though he is chained as a prisoner, that is conquering the souls at Rome. It's not Paul. It's not Paul's charismatic personality standing on a corner preaching, gathering up people. It's the weakness of Paul chained to a soldier, as a slave, as a prisoner, as a criminal, that's conquering Rome. God chooses to work like this. I really believe He chooses to work like this to reveal His glory and reveal that the advancement of the gospel is accomplished by His doing not by man's wisdom, not by man's strength, not by our skill or our manipulation. The advancement of the gospel continues to go forth because the message of the gospel is articulated accurately by anyone and everyone, though we are weak, though we are insignificant in the world's eyes, though we are in impossible situations. When we see we're placed in these situations and we can rejoice in this, the gospel advances because people have to ask us about the hope that lies within us and we continue on in faith in the midst of suffering. So, go back in Philippians with me there. 
in Philippians, when he's faced with suffering, I don't think he's surprised. I don't think he's, he's shocked that he's suffering for the gospel's sake. I think he knows, I think he's confident, I think the Apostle Paul is confident, and we need to be confident in the fact that God will turn this imprisonment, this suffering that we're facing, into a way to advance the gospel. He, he's even saying in this text, in Philippians 1, that his imprisonment and the jealousy of his rivals are meant to be a means to advance the gospel. Nothing can stop the gospel. God's power and grace trumps our rivals and our circumstances. Here in, in Philippians, we learn that Paul's confidence and his joy is not based on his immediate circumstances. This is very important. His confidence and joy is based on God's plan, not his comfort. Church, this is something I think we really need to focus on. So many times we, we, we find confidence when everything's going well in our life. And we have joy when everything's going well in our life. When disease and suffering and death, persecution, when those things come, we tend to think, well, we've done something wrong. This can't be part of God's plan. Oh, I'm troubled by this because I'm discomforted. I'm suffering. This is hard. No, we need to take confidence in this. Our joy is not based on our circumstance. It's based on God's promises, His provisions, His plan. Paul's response to personal suffering here in Philippi is important. It reveals that when a Christian's joy is connected to the advancement of the gospel, rather than physical comfort or personal acceptance, our joy will remain firm. Our joy will remain firm even in the midst of the worst circumstances if we have confidence in God's plan for our life. Do you have that this morning? Are you absolutely assured and confident according to God's Word that He is with you in the circumstance and He is going to use this circumstance to advance the Gospel? So if you're committed to that and you believe in that, are you seeing your circumstances in that light? Are you responding to your circumstances evangelistically? Are you seeing opportunities to rejoice in the face of suffering by advancing the Gospel, by declaring the truth about your real hope in life. It's not your comfort. It's not your immediate circumstance. Listen, as we get older, our comfort lessens. As, as we live longer in this world, circumstances change and not for the better. We deteriorate. The world deteriorates. Morality deteriorates in our country. We see that now. We will face persecution. We will face suffering. Time and culture will see to that. So how we embrace it, how we view it, will matter because as we face it, as we view it and deal with it, we can use this to advance the message of Jesus. And ultimately, that's what God wants us to do with everything in our life, is to advance His message. And that's what Paul rejoices over. I think that's what he's talking about there again in Philippians 1.18. He says, In this I will rejoice. He's saying... In the midst of this, what? Prison, growth of Christians while he's in prison, advancement of other Christians, rivals harassing him while he's in prison. In this, all of it, in the suffering, in this, 
Paul is rejoicing with confidence in God's providence. The gospel's not defeated because of rivals. The gospel's not defeated because there are guys preaching better than Paul in Rome now while he's imprisoned. The gospel's not defeated because Paul's locked away someplace. The gospel's advancing. In this I rejoice, even in this circumstance. Now don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, though. Paul is not rejoicing about his suffering. And he's not saying to us that we should enjoy suffering. Not at all. He's saying that he is confident, and we should be confident, that our suffering, his suffering, is part of God's plan, and that through suffering, the gospel can advance. I think that, again, comes from having a singularity of purpose. Paul, Paul viewed, this is something we need to learn, Paul, Paul viewed living, Paul viewed suffering, Paul viewed dying as a way to advance the gospel. So, so we have to ask ourselves, do we see it that way? Do we see our immediate joyful life when things are going well, right? Do we see that as a means to advance the gospel? Are we taking advantage of that, that good time in our life? Do we see our immediate suffering as a means to advance the gospel by declaring there is hope in the future for those who trust in Christ? And, and do we actually see our death as being better than our life to advance the gospel? I, I pray, and I've already talked to Nate about this, I pray that when I die, and I expect to die, don't know when, but I will die, or the Lord will come and take me and change me in the, on the way. But when I die... I expect nothing from Nate except a gospel-centered message. Nothing about me at my funeral. He better preach Christ, and he better hold his feet to the fire and make sure he does. And I'm sure he will. He needs to preach Christ because that's why I live, that's why I suffer, and that's why I want to die. I want to die for Jesus. It is better to die for him than to live a wasted life without living for him. I want to die with the singularity of purpose like the Apostle Paul. Paul had one passion. We see that in a couple of places in Scripture. Go with me to 2 Timothy. Now, I'm telling you, I want this. I want to cultivate this singularity of purpose in my heart. I'm not saying I've achieved it. I'm saying I want it. I think the only way that I can actually achieve this is by focusing on what the Scriptures promise us and the confidence that the Apostle Paul had to live his life, die his death for the glory of Jesus and the advancement of the gospel. That is, that is why I exist. That is why you exist. And I, I want to claim that. I want to obtain that. And I want to proclaim that. That's what Paul did. He wanted to see Jesus glorified by advancing the gospel no matter what it cost him personally. That is, that is a lofty goal, church. But I think it is a God-exalting goal for our life. This is why you live. This is why you have breath. This is why you were saved. It is to give your life to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what it costs you. That's why you work. That's why you go to school. That's why you're a mom. That's why you're a dad. That's why you're a student. The Apostle Paul had this view in 2 Timothy 2, 8. He had the singularity of purpose. 2, 8 through 10, it says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now, isn't it just astounding that he's talking to Timothy? 
Second letter to Timothy, his apprentice, his disciple, and he says to him, don't forget Jesus. Why did he say this? Because in the midst of persecution, like Timothy was facing at the church at Ephesus for being a young pastor, being ridiculed by other leaders, we tend to focus on ourselves and we forget about Jesus. So even the apostle Paul had to remind himself and his apprentice that Jesus needs to be preeminent in our thinking or we cannot go through suffering with confidence. So he says, don't forget about Jesus, the one I preach about. Verse 9 says, for this Jesus, for this gospel, he says, for which I am suffering, bound with chains. Don't forget this. I'm suffering and bound in chains as a criminal because of the gospel. But, he says, oh, take, take confidence in this. Rejoice in this. Timothy, the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's saying, even though I am suffering immediately, presently, in this harsh condition, and by the way, 2 Timothy was much harsher than the Philippian imprisonment. Now he's in a dungeon, now he's alone, now he's dying alone, cold, naked, stripped of his books, stripped of his comfort, stripped of his fellowship with others. He is about to die and he says, oh, but, but Timothy, the gospel's not going to die with me. No. In this I rejoice. I'm suffering for this, but this is what I rejoice in. The Word of God's not bound. And I would, I would suffer everything. Here in this text, he's saying, I would suffer sacrificing my life for the sake of those who will be saved. That's what he's talking about, the elect. Not those who are saved already, but those who will be saved through the proclamation and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I am willing to do whatever it takes. I have a singularity of purpose. I will be persecuted in chains and die if the gospel goes forth. And the gospel is not relying on Paul. It's fueling Paul. Now it's fueling Timothy, and now it's fueling us. If, if Paul had this purpose, and the singularity of purpose in his mind, I think that the, the inspiration of Scripture here would teach us that this should be our mindset. This should be our focus. And I, I, know, it's, I know it's our desire, but I, I think we, we get distracted. So we need this reminder. Now, he also says something like this again in Philippians. Go back there, Philippians 1. He states it clearly there as well. In 121, he displays his one passion, his singularity of purpose, which is to glorify Jesus through the advancement of the gospel no matter what it costs. That's what he says in verse 21. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, he doesn't say, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means I want to get out of this prison and I want to have a comfy life. He says, if I, if I live in the flesh, if I get out of prison, that means fruitful labor for me. You which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. He, listen, he's hard-pressed between dying and laboring. Dying and giving his life as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice for others. That's, that's the pressure he feels. There, there's not a third choice for, for Paul. Both of these end on the same note, to glorify Jesus. 
He says, I'm hard-pressed between these two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for, the pro- for your progress and the joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, he's, he's so focused. He's so consumed with the praise of Jesus' name. He says, I only have two choices, dying for Jesus' glory or living for Jesus' glory. And church, that's, that's, that's confidence that God has a purpose for suffering in this life. And I think that we need to have that confidence. That's my desire for each of us. That we would have joy in the midst of our suffering because we know that our suffering is ordained by God to advance the glorious gospel of Christ. So just ask yourself this morning, are you you able to rejoice with confidence in God's plan for suffering in your life like the Apostle Paul? I think some of you have already done that. I've watched some of you go through intense suffering and advance the gospel as you do so. Because you are confident that God did not place something on you that you could not handle, but He placed it on you to magnify His grace through your suffering. I hope all of us are able to find confidence and comfort in this as we face suffering. I think there's a truth here that we can cling to and find strength in when we do suffer. Let me just just say this. I have a couple points that are on your outline that I want to go over, but we need to understand that suffering is something we need to learn to embrace because it is God's will for us. It's the fallen condition of the world we live in. I said, we're going to face it. All of us, our kids are going to face it. And we need to teach them to place their confidence in God's providential plan, not their immediate circumstance because that is fleeting. One day, your child's healthy. The next day, you hear the worst news you could ever imagine. The next day, something else happens. You, you, you have a story in Job of a man who's rejoicing about his kids, offering sacrifices for his kids, praising God for his kids. The next day, they're all dead. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him, Job says. And in all this, he did not sin. Because he was confident that God was in control of his circumstance. He had not abandoned him. And so let me, let me help you as, you as you face suffering because you're going to suffer if you're a witness for Jesus. That's, that's a given. And, and you're going to suffer, but again, because we live in a fallen world. That's a given, all right? And, and I don't know about you, but, but I have to be reminded of this because sorrow and suffering and sickness and trials didn't cease when I got saved. They didn't. Matter of fact, some sorrows and sufferings actually intensified intensified when I was converted. That's what Jesus actually promised would happen. Look with me at John 15 and see that. That's what he promised for those who are truly born again. Some suffering is caused by the advancement of the gospel. Look what it says in John 15 verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were 
of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. And this is what we need to remember. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They will also persecute you if you belong to Jesus. Suffering will come. If you're suffering as a faithful witness of Christ, if you're suffering for obeying God's commands this morning, if you're being persecuted for being a Christian this morning, rejoice. This is God's will for your life. And He's not going to waste your suffering. Now on your outline, you can see that first we can be confident that God will use our biblical convictions, our conversion, and our suffering to advance the gospel. According to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, 10-12. You can be confident that God will use your biblical convictions and your suffering because of those convictions to advance the gospel. This is God's will for your life. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, so what Paul's saying to Timothy is this. You saw what my witness produced. You saw what my conduct and my teaching and my aim in life, my purpose in life, my singularity of purpose, you saw what my patience and my love and my steadfastness produced. Produced persecutions and sufferings. So, if you're going to follow Jesus and have biblical convictions, expect suffering. Expect suffering if you trust and obey God's Word. See, we expect suffering because of this. Our worldview, which comes from Scripture, our worldview is hated in the world. It's, it's hated in a world where sin is not just tolerated, sin is now celebrated, right? It's not just tolerated. There was a time period where sin was tolerated. Now, the most heinous crimes against God and His Word are celebrated in the public's eye. And, and you and I will be persecuted if we love others enough to point that out. If you love your neighbors and you love your friends and you love your relatives and those who are dying in sin and you actually share with them the truth about sin, you will be persecuted. If you love them, how do you express that love? You share the gospel with them. You share with them that there is forgiveness of sins by trusting in Christ's life and His death and His resurrection. There's forgiveness. You preach that with conviction. But that makes no sense whatsoever unless you expose sin first. Forgiveness of sins, well, what does that mean? Why do I need to be forgiven of anything? I'm a good person. 
No, the Bible says you're a liar and that you're greedy and that you have hatred in your heart and that you're an adulteress and that you're a fornicator and that you're a murderer, you abort babies and that you're a homosexual, you're sexually immoral. Those things God hates. But I love you enough to expose this so that you can find grace in the forgiveness of Christ. But the world will hate you for that. The world will persecute you for that, though it is the most loving act we can express to them to advance the gospel and glorify Jesus and bring them into a comfort and a hope and a confidence that their sins can be forgiven. But the world will not accept that. But that's what the Scripture tells us to do. Look with me at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6. And this is, this is why Paul, is where Paul is at in Philippi. This is what he's expressing. This is why he, he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, this is you know, my life, my purpose, my ministry that brought persecution and suffering becomes part of my life because of this. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and that would encompass all sexual immorality, okay? But then he even gets into more details a little bit later. He says, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Liars don't go to heaven. Thieves don't go to heaven. Homosexuals don't go to heaven. But those who have been washed in the blood of Christ, those forgiven sinners, those forgiven thieves, those forgiven homosexuals, those forgiven adulterers, they inherit the kingdom of God. But they must repent and trust that Christ atoned for their crimes on the cross, paid their penalty, received God's wrath so they would receive God's forgiveness and grace at the cross. And, and Paul says in verse 11, rejoice in this because this describes everyone in the congregation. All of us were what Paul just described in some form or fashion. We've all done these things. But he says, and such were some of you, but rejoice. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed by the atonement of Jesus. The substitutionary sacrifice of God the Son. He atoned for your sins. He paid for them so that you can now enter into God's presence with joy. And Paul says, it's for this kind of message you're going to receive persecution. Yet it's the most loving message we can proclaim. Because apart from this, there is no salvation. A sinner must repent and turn to Christ and trust in what God provided in that sacrifice. But if, if you're being persecuted today and suffering today because you're appointing people to Jesus, Paul's saying, rejoice. But, but many of us, even though we may not be facing persecution immediately right now because of our witness, we, we are all dealing with suffering because of this world's condition. Not only will we suffer if we are faithful as God's ambassadors, but we're going to also suffer in life because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world world according to Romans 5 sin came into the world through one man through Adam and all fell in Adam and this this world is under God's curse and sin is bringing destruction deterioration our thinking is deteriorating our bodies are deteriorating 
disease invades us indiscriminately. Disease is not a, a respecter of persons. Evil men and natural disasters hurt Christians every single day because that's the nature of this fallen world. It's, it's, it's under God's wrath. It's under God's judgment. And sin is destroying all that is in it. But even in that, we as God's children can rejoice. We can rejoice even in this, in this sin-cursed world because we have confidence that God placed us here for a purpose. God is not going to waste our suffering in this life. We can be confident, secondly, that God, He can use our suffering. He can use our suffering to glorify His name and advance the gospel. Even be confident that He can use our response to suffering to cultivate evangelistic questions. See, I think that's, that's how our suffering works presently when we face physical suffering and the world's decomposing around us and it's bringing destruction into our lives through disease, through evil events. I think the way we respond to that can advance the gospel. It, it cultivates evangelistic questions from people and allows us to give them gospel answers. When, when we face physical suffering because of this fallen world, it opens a door of evangelism for us. It allows us to say, now, this suffering is not because I've sinned against God. I, I'm suffering because we live in a broken world because of sin. But one day, my hope is this. My, my bodily suffering will cease. And one day, I'll be with Christ, and I'll have a new body in which it will, will never decompose, will, will never be destroyed. I'll never face ongoing suffering, eternal suffering in hell. That's my hope in the midst of my immediate Suffering. Suffering for the Christian just reminds us of heaven. And it allows us to point people to the hope we have in heaven and how we have come to know that we have hope in heaven through the gospel. So I think our response to suffering cultivates evangelistic questions and gospel answers. You know, you often wonder, why did this bad thing happen to me? Did I do something wrong? Did my parents do something wrong? Am I cursed? What's going on? Why did this happen? Well, people have asked that question for centuries. They asked that of Jesus even. Look with me in John 9. In John 9, the question was posed to Jesus about a man who was born blind. This guy must have done something wrong. There's something evil in this man. There's something evil in his parents. What's happening here? Why would a man be born blind unless God hated him? Why would a man suffer for no reason? And Jesus says, let me, let me tell you this. I'll tell you this. Truth, he says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples said, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
he came back seeing. This man's suffering was providentially planned by God, he says here, to cultivate an evangelistic question. What did he do wrong? What's going on with this guy? Why is he suffering? Why is there bad things happening in my life? What's going on, God? The answer is, this world is fallen. This world is in need of healing. The world can't heal itself. He even makes the illustration of how silly it would be for the dirt that he picks up to stick in the man's eye to heal him. That makes no sense. That's impossible. You ever got dirt in your eye? doesn't make it better. Jesus takes a wad of mud and sticks it in the man's eye and says, look at this. It's not that this man did anything to heal himself or to cause his blindness, but his suffering exists to display the glory of Jesus. Our suffering exists to do the same thing. It allows us to point to the world and say, look, this world is broken. That's why I'm dealing with cancer. That's why I'm dealing with heart disease. That's why I'm dealing with a broken home. That's why I'm dealing with sadness and grief and depression and sorrow. But my hope is in this. Jesus has promised me forgiveness and peace and a new body. And that promise is held out to all who repent and trust in Him. The suffering is temporal. The peace and the healing of Christ is eternal. In this I rejoice. In the midst of my suffering, this is what I rejoice in. I, I rejoice in this. My suffering will cease. It is intense. It is hard. It is difficult. This man had a horrible life up to this point. But it was God's plan for him to be born blind so that Jesus could be magnified. It is God's purpose for us to face suffering so that Jesus would be magnified. In this, I rejoice. My suffering is God-ordained for a divine purpose to glorify Jesus. I want to advance the gospel in my suffering. That's my desire. So rejoice in that today when you face suffering. Be confident that it will advance the gospel. And whether we, we suffer for Jesus' name as a witness or we suffer simply in this fallen world as his children. We need, we need our, our lives and our minds focused on God's purposes and God's providence and God's grace and God's reasoning for putting us in this situation. It is not accidental that the things that happen to us happen. It is providential. And we need to respond to every circumstance in such a way that we can, we can either rejoice in the gospel or advance the gospel by sharing with people, yes, this is miserable. It is difficult. Apart from Jesus, I would have given up. I have no hope. But God, in love, sent forth His Son at the right time to receive my suffering, to take my place on the cross, to receive the penalty that I deserve so that in time, my suffering will cease because of Christ's suffering in my place. That's, that's really where we need to take our suffering. Now, it's not easy to do that in the midst of it. That's why I think that our response to it as Christians has to be built on scriptural confidence. We have to know that this suffering we face hasn't taken God by surprise. Though we don't understand the purposes of it, though we don't enjoy it in the midst of it, 
our confidence can be in the promises of God that it will cease. We can endure it. God promises that he wouldn't put anything upon us that we couldn't endure without making a way of escape. And the way of escape is Jesus. He put an end to our suffering. We need to see our lives and suffering in light of that. In light of God's sovereign plan. And at times, God's plan, according to Scripture, is to advance the gospel through suffering. Let me leave you with one more text from the Old Testament. Turn with me to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, I believe, reminds us, reminds us as believers in Christ, that God planned to use suffering to produce beauty from ashes. That's what he says here in 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is a prophecy speaking of Jesus. This is as if Jesus is speaking here. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Christ, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint heart, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord God is on me. He has anointed me. I'm coming to bring good news, forgiveness of sinners through my sacrifice, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set free those who are captivated by sin, to open the prisons, to let them free, to serve God, to proclaim the Lord's favor is upon them, His grace has come, and that vengeance will come in the future. But I'm here to comfort those who repent, mourn of their sins, and grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, and oil, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Now, now Jesus does this, Jesus says this in light of His suffering. This is what we receive. This reminds us that God planned to use suffering to produce beauty from ashes. Through Jesus' God-ordained providential suffering, we believers are now drenched in the oil of gladness instead of mourning. We are rejoicing in the midst of suffering because to receive this blessing from Jesus meant Jesus would suffer in our place. And if Jesus suffered in my place, I am confident that I will never have to suffer under God's wrath. And in this I rejoice, even though my immediate circumstances are difficult. Our suffering as Christians should remind us of this. It should remind us of how God used suffering, the suffering of Jesus, to comfort us. And, and we can confidently embrace suffering in light of this. We can confidently trust God to use our suffering now even to advance His kingdom and honor Christ's name. We can trust Him for this. In, in this, in God and His purposes, I rejoice. No matter what circumstance I face. 
I can do that because God said that I have this in Christ. I have this oil of gladness that my sins have been atoned for because Jesus faced the wrath of God for me. And that means there is a promise of no more suffering. Our suffering has ceased. And I think that when Paul writes to the Philippians, he's telling them, no matter what circumstance I find myself in, be it prison, be it the exaltation of other brothers here in Rome, or even the attacks of my enemies, I rejoice because I'm confident that God and His grace will triumph over all these situations. And if I'm allowed to testify to that, thank you. I rejoice in this, and I will rejoice. So I want us to learn to do that. I, I, I know, again, that all of us, and some of us here more than others, have faced suffering in this life for being a witness and just for living in this fallen condition that we live in in this world. Yet, I want us to excel in our confidence. And we can't do that apart from God's revelation. So as we look at Paul's situation, I want us to rejoice in every one of these circumstances that we see as we look at verse 14 and then 15 to 18. Because we're going to face these things. Next week we're going to face the difficult challenge of rejoicing when brothers excel more than we do in the ministry. How we should rejoice in their victories and not have envy. Okay? That's, that's also a challenge. We need to learn to rejoice in that. So let's just pray that we will rejoice in all these circumstances to advance the glorious name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you today that through your word, we, we have confidence that every situation, all circumstances have to be filtered through your will and that your will is to advance the gospel through every circumstance that we face. And Lord, I, I want that stamped upon my heart. I want that singularity of purpose to be impressed upon my actions so that when I face suffering, and I, God, I, I know I'm going to face suffering. I know I will face personal suffering and even corporate suffering with those who suffer here in this church. And when I, when I see these almost impossible circumstances, what would seem impossible to me, I, I, want, I want my heart to be confident that you are in control. And the weakness of my flesh fails in situations like that. So I need your Spirit's help. I need your direction from your Word. So embed this in us. Plant this deep in us. Because we will all face suffering in this life. And we want to face it in a way that would glorify Jesus and advance your kingdom here on earth. Father, I pray that you would help us to do that with joy. Joy in your purposes, joy in your power, joy in your people. Lord, I, I pray that through this church, your name would be praised through the good times, through suffering, and even through death. I pray that Jesus will be magnified in all that we do and all that we face. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.